Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am joined by Philip Bump. He is a correspondent for The Washington Post based in New York. He is the author of the weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart, and the upcoming book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip, thank you for being here. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Of course, happy to be here. I'd love to start with the book. The topic is so intriguing to me. I know it's packed with graphs and you help us, as you always do, unpack what they mean. And I want to basically cover two really big topics, which are how has the baby boom helped to shape our current society? I know you spent many, many pages on this. And then as this era ends, what comes next? What comes next in terms of politics, in terms of wealth, in terms of power? So it probably makes sense to begin at the very beginning and say, who are the baby boomers? What defines them other than just when they were born? Yeah, this is a really important point that I think a lot of people sort of appreciate in the abstract, but not in the specifics. So the baby boom is defined as people who were born between 1946 and 1964. Now, technically, demographers view that as a sort of a smaller window than that. They look at basically the summer of 46, for example, because that's when the demographic shift, the number of births actually began uh, that defines what the baby boom is. And I think it's really important. A lot of people don't recognize the baby boom is the only defined generation that the government really recognizes as such. It may be the case that millennials get there as well by by virtue of the scale of the millennials. But the baby boom was such a distinct demographic event. There were so many people being born, really an unfathomable number of people being born relative to the size of the population at the time, that it is still visible today. If you look at a graph of people by age in the United States today, you can see this massive jump in age when you hit 1946, when you hit the the late 1940s and 1950s, because there were so many people being born. And that then trickled out into everything. And it really was the analogy that's often used is a, is a python swallowing a pig that you know that starts to eat the pig and then the pig works its way through the body. That really is what happened to American politics and the economy. As the baby boom aged, you saw this huge, in the 1940s and 1950s, this huge boom in baby stuff, right? Like diaper industries, right? Like all of these things that were sort of these quiet industries suddenly became massive because they had all these customers for it. And then they all, all, all those customers went away. And, you know, there were contractions in all these industries as it moved on to other things. The boom in teenagers as a focus of attention, that is a function largely of the baby boom. Not entirely, certainly, but there were so many young people that all of a sudden there was this massive marketplace for young people that really reshaped things. And then, of course, you overlap technological changes. You had the advent of television, you had the advent of transistor radios, and you can see how culture sort of reshaped around the baby boom. And that same pattern just continued on and continues on to this day, which is really the subject of the book, because it is only now, at this point in time, that that power of the baby boom in all these different aspects of American life is really starting to fade. And the book looks at what that actually means. Philip, I was today years old when I heard the expression, the python swallows the pig. So I appreciate that. And it's a great way of visualizing what you're talking about here. And you laid out some really specific ways in which the baby boom has shaped our country. Just the increase in the diaper industry at the time, the new shift towards thinking about teenagers. Are there specific ways where we see that there were 
significant changes in our political system that responded to the baby boom? I know that's a really broad question, but I think people might be asking, did the way we vote change? Did our two-party system and what they stood for change? How did our political system kind of react to this new huge demographic? So one of the most concrete ways that I think people under-recognize is the fact that the voting age is now 18, right? So we tend to credit the fact that the Vietnam War had become a focus of American chief political activity as being one of the triggers for the voting age being lowered. It certainly was the case as part of the rhetoric at the time was, hey, you know, you're going to pluck kids out of just out of high school and send them to Vietnam, shouldn't they be allowed to vote as well? But people under-recognize that a large part of that was simply that there were so many people in that age group. There were so many people who were between the ages of 18 and 21 who weren't enfranchised because there were just an enormous number of them because of the baby boom. Uh, And so they had a much louder voice than would people of that same age group have had you know, 10, 20 years earlier. And so they were really able to put a lot of pressure on the government and already were putting pressure on the government uh, to have an increased voice in politics that helped then lead uh, to this change from the voting age being 21 to being 18. And then that, of course, empowered them politically. Uh, It's always been the case that younger people vote less heavily than do older people uh, and was the case even in that first election. But that is a very concrete shift in American politics that happened in large part because maybe, of course, then one can get into the advent of the Vietnam War. And one can't necessarily draw a straight line between having all of these young people at one's disposal and then feeling more ambitious about what you're doing in Indochina. But it is certainly the case that part of the challenge that the United States faced at the time where there were so many people who had left high school, essentially, and then had to do something. And that was a pool of people that could then be used in the armed forces. It is a reason that college enrollment surged because there were so many young people they are all, and again, this is that pig working its way through the Python, right? We have gotten to, you know, 20 years old, and all of a sudden there are all these changes that happened around what's going on with 20-year-olds, and then that continues forward as well. What it means then is if there are guiding political identities within that generation, that then reshapes politics. And so we've seen over time that there tends to be more stability in an individual's political views over the course of their life, particularly later life, than people might acknowledge. We tend to think, you, you know, you're liberal as a kid and conservative as you get older. That's sort of a, a horial trope. It's not necessarily true. It's sort of true, actually, for the baby boom itself. But because there are so many of them, that things that were priorities to that cohort of people, to the baby boomers themselves, had a disproportionate effect on politics. So, for example, protecting uh, employment status and protecting the amount of money they're paying for houses, things like that sort of get calcified by sheer virtue of the number of people who are in the same age group that are voting the same way. That's part of what I was going to ask. And that's interesting in the sense that I think there's a perception now that our politicians are largely responsive to an older generation. Mm -hmm. I think that's because they vote more than the younger generation. But was it true that as the baby boomers aged, were they always a bigger voting block? By which I mean, is it always just the case that younger people really don't vote in the numbers that are representative of their power? Or was there something different about baby boomers? Were they always more civically engaged or have they aged into that? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. There are a few ways in which 
the way in which younger generations today react to the baby boomers, the boomers themselves reacted to older generations. Uh, and so boomers were more engaged at a younger age than were older generations. But younger generations today are more engaged still than were boomers at the same age. So, for example, if you have a, you know, a 30 year old millennial, that person is more likely to vote at the age of 30 than was a boomer. But a boomer at the age of 30 was more likely to vote than a member of the silent generation, for example. But it also works in ways that are anti-institutional, if you will. So boomers were less likely to have been engaged in civic organizations, to go to church, to do things like that, than were older generations. And millennials and Gen Z are less likely to do so still than were boomers. The boomers are sort of in the middle of this pattern of shifts in how Americans sort of interact socially with one another. But there is still a stark divide between boomers and younger generations on things like that, including on voting. But again, to your point. Boomers tend to be older, older people tend to vote more, and that's part of why they hold this proportion of power at the moment. It's fascinating. And I guess the next question would be, and for how long do they hold this disproportionate right. power? Because I think a statistic you cite in your book is that within five years, I believe this is right, almost all of the boomers will be 65 or over. And then obviously, because we know what happens to all humans. There will be a point in which boomers are not the majority voting block. And how much longer do we see them maintaining the power and wealth and influence that they currently have? So there are a few considerations there, right? Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, one of the things that the book addresses very carefully, delicately is, you know, boomers are dying more than they used to. And, you know, that is obviously reducing the number of boomers in relative to young generations. The question of who votes more boomers or younger generations depends to some extent on how you define the boundaries of the younger generations. Pew Research Center, which tends to be the de facto arbiter of where those generational lines are drawn, uh, already says that millennials and Gen Z vote in higher numbers. That is actual raw count as opposed to percentages than boom and Gen X, uh, which sits between millennials and boomers and always gets forgotten. So there are those considerations, but then there is just the power that exists by virtue of already being held, right? And so when we look at economic status, which is obviously a form of power, that will maintain for an extended period of time simply because it's not something that's challenged at the ballot box, right? You know, the home ownership that provides value to people. The fact that younger people are more likely to have college debt, which is weighing them down and reduces their net worth, that, that makes it also college debt makes it harder for them to be able to afford a house as well. You know, there are all these other considerations about what power means and the ways in which the baby boom is able to retain power in those other senses as well. But then those also can help inform what happens with politics. So, you know, a lot of housing policy, for example, is driven by people who are already homeowners and those people tend to be older and those people who are older tend to be boomers. And so it's sort of this intertwining web of ways in which the boomers affect power, even without necessarily doing it through voting specifically. Right, because we've basically baked into the system that it will be responsive to the people who vote and the people who vote, I think, are still largely the boomers. So looking at your demographic trends and looking at the data, mm -hmm. do we think that Gen X and then the millennials, will they rise to the same levels of power? I know that there's a narrative that I'm just not educated enough to know if there's truth to it, but there seems to be a narrative that boomers have basically ruined the country for the next generation. Is there something that we've baked into the system that would mean that Gen X and millennials won't be able to obtain the same power and influence that boomers have? 
I don't know if there's anything necessarily that is a function of things that the boomers have done. I mean, obviously, any political decision that's made can be reversed to some extent, uh, you know, obviously accepting things like global climate change and things along those lines, which are somewhat harder to tackle, as, as I think we all recognize now. That said, yes, I mean, I, I think it is certainly the case that when we're looking at the, the scale of the baby boom, when we're looking at the ways in which the baby boom has affected its power, that it is disproportionate. Gen X is not going to have the same political, economic, or cultural hold that does the baby boom, both because it is following in the immediate shadow of the baby boom and is highly influenced by the baby boom, but also because it's substantially smaller. Uh, the number of millennials relative to boomers is actually fairly close. There are almost as many people who are members of the millennial generation, again, as defined by Pew Research Center, since it's not a demographically distinct group, but there are almost as many millennials as there were boomers. The difference, of course, is the United States is far more populous now, so they make up a much smaller percentage of the United States. Uh, but for example, when you look at something like housing, will there be a huge glut of houses on the market as baby boomers die that then tanks the cost of housing and makes housing more affordable? Probably not, in part because there is almost a one-to-one -one ratio between boomers and millennials. And so, you know, if a boomer dies, there's it, it's not as though all those houses are going to sit empty because there are just as many people waiting in the wings to come and move into them, right? So there, there are all of these weird sorts of ways that these things intertwine and overlap. But no, I mean, you know, I, I think the one thing that I got talking to political scientists as I was doing this book is that what happens now depends on what we do now. It, it, you know, when we talk about, and the book tries to look out to 2060, which is where the Census Bureau's demographic projections end. When we talk about what's happening in 2060, that's, that depends on what we do today, right? It doesn't depend on what's happening in 2055. It depends on the choices that we're making today, uh, the policy decisions that are being made today, which means, of course, then, that it disproportionately also depends on what boomers are doing. So that's something that I wanted to move into, which is talking about the census where we get our demographic information, but I want to focus on something you just said, which is what happens next obviously depends on the choices we make right now. And I know that this might feel like something we talk about a lot, but could you lay out for us what you think the big forks in the road are? It seemed to me like when you said it, that you thought there were a couple of really big policy discussions that we have to have, a bunch of big, again, forks in the road where we have to make a decision that will basically determine what our society looks like in 2060. And as you and I know, sometimes it's the little decisions we're not even really anticipating that will make the big changes. But are there some huge issues where you say, if we turn left this and if we turn right this? I mean, honestly, there's, I don't know if there are things that fall neatly along those lines, in part because right and left positions on those sorts of things tend to be somewhat fungible, right? One of the questions I think that exists around younger people and what happens with American politics as we move forward and boomers have a reduced voice in politics is, do those younger people stay as democratic as they have been over the course of the past decade or two? That's a really, really core question. And it's one that intertwines with the overlapping issue, which we haven't discussed at all, which I think is probably the most important issue here, which is race and the racial composition in the United States. That's a fundamental aspect of this shift that the book spends a lot of time on. But that said, I don't necessarily think that it's the case that when we talk about the millennial generation coming up, that we have to make a choice at this point in time. If we do this, then we're on one path. If we do that, we're on the other path. Again, accepting climate change, 
where I think it's broadly understood that we need to make decisions over the short term in order to change what the future climate looks like. Beyond that, I don't necessarily think it's the case. I think there are certainly questions about quality of life, both for younger people and older people. You know, how much of the investment that we're making as a society at this point goes to young kids in schools or old people and senior care? Right, which is going to continue to be a very significant schism uh, in American politics. But I don't think those things are going to necessarily reshape the United States over a long period of time in a way that is intractable. I want to remind our listeners we're talking with Philip Bump, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. You can buy it starting in January of 2023. Now, Philip, I think you're right that I've been kind of dancing around the race issue waiting to get to it, and let's get to it. And you use the term, I think, overlap or overlay, that it really is something that pervades so many of the demographic trends that we're talking about and these questions of wealth and power. And I'm wondering if we can start there and maybe talk about very broadly, I think people understand that we will have a majority-minority country. But what are some of the biggest ways you think right now we're seeing that shift play out? What does that really mean to move from a predominantly Caucasian country to a predominantly minority-majority country? So there are two considerations that I think are really important and I spend a lot of time on in the book. The first is that people under-recognize the extent to which America was very white, particularly at the time that the baby boomer marched. It was white not only in that immigration to the United States prior to that point had largely been from Europe, including Eastern and Southern Europe, uh, where there were additional questions of race that sort of emerged about a century ago were Italian-Americans considered white in the same way that English people were. Those were real debates that were happening a century ago. But at the time, not only was America very heavily white, but immigration was very tightly restricted at the time that the baby boom began. And only right at the end of the baby boom was immigration loosened, which then led to an influx of people from Asia and Latin America in particular, Central America, that reshaped racial demography. So that's the first consideration is that the boom is probably one of the whitest generations, one of the most, you know, the the least immigrant dense and whitest periods of of American history to some extent, Uh, which also I think it's worth pointing out. The book spends some time on this. It's worth pointing out that what we mean when we talk about people of color, when we talk about non-whites, it used to be that we sort of just viewed non-white Americans that was sort of synonymous with black Americans to a large extent. And so a lot of our policies around if you weren't white, what were we talking about? We're generally talking about black Americans. That's not the case anymore. And it is, it is a very heavily Hispanic and Asian population as well, particularly moving forward. So then we get to this question of what does it mean once whites are not a majority? And the real question is, when you ask that question, who are we talking about? And when might that happen? Because one of the things that we've seen is the census bureau's projections, which are the root of this you know, majority-minority conversation, they make predictions and estimations about Hispanic Americans in particular that isn't really borne out by polling. That when you talk to people who are third or fourth generation of having immigrated from Hispanic countries or countries that we associate with Hispanic immigrants, they don't necessarily identify as Hispanic as much anymore. They, they are more likely to have assimilated and to, to identify themselves as white uh, in a sort of assimilation pattern that was similar to what we saw with Eastern and Southern Europeans about a century ago. And so it's not necessarily the case that when we think about who is Hispanic today, 
that their progeny in a generation or two are going to identify as Hispanic. And if that isn't the case, it means we have a vo more voluminous sense of white America than we do now, that being white has sort of expanded outward and encompassed more people. And as such, the idea that whites are now a minority may either be postponed significantly or even somehow averted. And one of the things that I think is really important here is to point out that how we talk about this also affects perceptions of it. You know, when we talk about, oh, this looming demographic shift for the United States, people instinctually have much more negative reactions, particularly white Republicans have much more negative reactions to this than simply America's just becoming a, a more diverse place. And, you know, talking about it in other ways can also shift how people perceive it and therefore presumably down the line how people react to it politically. That's such important context. And of course, it always makes a difference. The words we use to define demographic shifts and how people perceive things as either positive or negative. And there's so many things that you just said that I want to pick up on, but I know that our time is limited. And so I wanted to focus on, I think, a, a question that I ask myself a lot, which is, what is the greatest indication of partisan affiliation? Is it generation? Is it geographic? Is it racial background? What are some things that we can say in terms of what predicts partisan affiliation? And therefore, the next thing I want to ask you is, who is the new base of each party? It's a very interesting question. We have assumptions, I think it's safe to say, using this sort of collective royal we, about how demography and party overlap that aren't necessarily accurate. And that's obviously true in the case of, you know, Hispanic Americans. And, you know, you look at the ways in which Hispanics were less uh, supportive of Democratic candidates in recent elections than they had been prior. We tend to assume that Black Americans are heavily Democratic, which I think has, has helped over time. But white Americans tend to be fairly evenly divided, lean toward Republicans. But again, when we talk about how we use those demographic identifiers to try and predict partisanship. I actually spoke with some researchers who found that if you consider only demography and you consider gender and you consider race, and you consider things along those lines, basically you can accurately predict partisanship about 60% of the time, a little less than that, which isn't very high, right? If you have a whole slew of demographic characteristics, one would probably assume you can make a decent guess about uh, someone's partisanship. But it, it, over time, if you look at the past 60 years of presidential voting, it's really hard to do that. So the question then, your question is, you know, what happens? What happens in 2040? What happens in 2060 when we're talking about partisanship? Who are Democrats and who are Republicans? Uh, I think it's safe to say that, uh, and one of the trends that we've seen is the Republican Party has done a good job, and I shouldn't just say Republican Party, but right-leaning parties internationally have done a good job of appealing to non-college educated voters. Uh, we've seen this pattern. There's been research to show that the right is benefiting now from people who have uh, lower educational achievements than others, uh, whereas the left is sort of benefiting from those who have higher education. We, we often attribute this in the United States to Donald Trump. It actually precedes Trump, at least going back to 2010. And again, this is something we see internationally. So that is a guide, at least in the present. But one thing that I think we underrecognize is parties are fungible. Right. Parties can change. They can change their positions. The Republican Party of today. Yes, we had a recent vote that there were a lot of Republicans who opposed to uh, cementing the idea that same sex marriage should be legal. But we had a lot of Republicans support it as well. And it, it, it ended up passing. And, you know, it is not the case that the Republican Party overall is still fighting that because that's a cultural shift. And that's something 
incidentally, it's very important to younger people more so than it is to older people. And that's a way in which a party can change to try and make itself more palatable to other groups. Uh, and so, you know, who knows even what the Democratic Party and Republican Party think their best bet is in order to appeal to voters in 2040. So it's sort of hard to say. I realize this is a cop out, especially for a guy who wrote a book looking at the future of politics in America. But it's important to realize that when we talk about partisanship in particular, because the parties themselves can change what it is that they're about, uh, it's sort of hard to predict who it is they're going to be appealing to. I don't think that's a cop out at all. I think it's an acknowledgement of reality and the fact that parties change. And in fact, I think one of the themes that we've discussed is that parties change because they want to survive and they need to be responsive to those who vote. And you've laid out really carefully, I think, how different voting blocks and different demographic trends will affect that. And so there really is no way of knowing for sure. I think what's important is to be able to have the conversations and what you do in the book, which is really to help translate a lot of data and a lot of graphs, which I think can be overwhelming for people and give them a digestible way of thinking about this information. So I think you averted the cop out completely. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the book goes into more detail than I can do here. One of the things I heard from a lot of people uh, as I was doing research for this book is a lot of warnings about trying to <laughs> feel as though we can make bold predictions about the future. One of the reasons, you know, the book does not say in the year 2040, here's who's going to win the presidential race in these states. It would be lovely if I would be able to be that precise, but in part because, you know, if you look at 2010, I, I challenge you to go back in time to 2010. Broadly, I challenge you to do that. That'd be kind of cool. But to go back to 2010 and say, hey, tell me what you think American politics can look like in 2020. Right. How many people are going to say, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump will be president in the middle of a pandemic. And, I mean, like, you know, you just you can't predict 2024 at this point, much less 2060. And I think it's important to be humble about that. And there are actually two entire chapters in the book that are, you know, centered on what we don't know and potentially can't know uh, as we consider what's happening in the United States moving forward. And I think we could all be humble. And I think I have a very old tape of what I thought that politics in 2022 would look like back in 2010. And I can say that um, I think the ways that I was right are much, much smaller than the ways that I was really <laughs> sure. resoundingly wrong. So Philip Bump, I could spend so much more time talking to you about this, but I do want to recommend to the listeners that they pick up your new book when it is available in January the aftermath, the last days of the baby boom and the future of power in America. Philip Bump is also, of course, the author of the weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart, which we didn't even get into because that is for a different episode, I hope. And he is, as you all know, a correspondent for the Washington Post based in New York. You can find him on Twitter. And now I'm also following him on post at P Bump. Philip, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I want to remind all the listeners, please, of course, subscribe, rate and review. And you can find me on all social media, including post as well at Levinson Jessica. We wish everybody a great day. 